The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey, everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I am a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books. I'm the person who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book. And I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. And sometimes I hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And today is an extra special episode for me because we get to do two things. We get to talk about uh, a wonderful new book, and we get to talk about a classic book all at the same time. I'm joined today by Salamisha Tillett. She is the Henry Rutgers Professor of African-American Studies and Creative Writing at Rutgers University, Newark. She's also a contributing cultural critic for the New York Times. She is well-known, widely acclaimed, and she's here to talk about her wonderful new book, In Search of the Color Purple. Salamisha, so good to see you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So you decided to write a book about a book. And, and as, a, as a professor, as a literary critic, that's not foreign territory for you, but you chose to write a book for the general public and to write one on, for Black people, a sacred text. <laughs> the color purple, for so many of us, means so much. What, what made you choose, choose that path? Yeah, it's actually a really kind of practical um, reason. I was given the opportunity to write this book. Um, it was supposed to be a new series at Abrams Books, which is not known for nonfiction. It's a publishing company known for beautiful, beautiful picture books and for children's literature. And so they started this new nonfiction series and it was supposed to be writers on writers. And so there was like a list and uh, Jameson Stoltz, who's my editor, um, approached my agent, Tanya McKinnon, with a series of books like Black Boy, Native Son, Beloved, and The Color Purple. And so Tanya then immediately thought that I would be a good fit for The Color Purple. And I should say that, and you know this quite well, I've been working on this. I feel like it's a magnus opus of Nina Simone for many, many years. And as an academic transitioning to someone who was writing for the general public, it was just a very difficult process for me to kind of write that Nina Simone book proposal. It took me like two years to actually find the right voice. But in between that process, there was this gift of the color purple. And I wrote the proposal for this book in a month. So I think being able to write about a book that I read when I was 15 years old, and I kind of t I've taught it so many times, I knew the controversies, and it had shaped me in so many important ways. And also Alice Walker is just a really good writer about herself. So all of that then came quite easily to me. And then I also was able to write the Nina Simone proposal shortly thereafter and then sold that. And then I'm still I'm under contract for that book. So to me, it's like a really interesting story about my relationship to The Color Purple, but also just being able to free myself up as a writer, um, an experiment with form. Here, you know, my first book, Sites of Slavery, is an academic book. We're in that, that tradition. So it is really hard, as you also know, to books for a general audience when you've been trained to hone your voice in a particular way. So I think this was a book that allowed me to kind of break away in some ways from a certain type of writing, but then also use that training to tell the story of The Color Purple and its many lives. The story, and as you say, the many lives of The Color Purple is one of the things that really comes through this book in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. Obviously, I knew it as a book and read it, and then I, I knew it as a film, and I knew it was on Broadway. But to think mm -hmm. about how those three different forms matter and, why, and how they came to be is an incredible story. And you divide the book up in three parts, Seely, Suge, and Sophia. And anybody who knows The Color Purple knows how central those three figures are. But in some ways, you're also talking about the book, the film, and the Broadway play in those sections. Mm -hmm. First of all, why did you choose to divide the book in that way? Why, why Celie, Suge, and Sophia? Great question. Thank you. Originally, I didn't think, I thought I was going to do like mothers, daughters, sisters. Um, yeah, I had a three-part structure in my head the whole time. But then when I started writing the book, it's, it was as if, to tell the story of The Color Purple is really to tell the, sister, the story of sisterhood and the story of lovers and the story of community. And so these three women rise to the, the story 
if you watch it or if you read it, but by the time you get to the musical, and I think that also shaped it because it's the last version, there's a new movie coming out in 2023, a movie of the musical, but up until, but up to this point, the, the last version is the musical. Sophia kind of upstages Nettie. And so I thought, wow, that's so interesting. Like, how does that process happen? How does Nettie become less significant in a book about sisterhood? And how does Sophia rise to the fore? So that was kind of part of like my thinking. And then also I was able to match it on to, you know, what's important about the movie. Seeley's story is important, but it's really Shug and her sexual freedom and Seeley's relationship with her that's innovative on screen. Whereas in the book, I think it's Seeley's voice that, that matters the most and that changes American literature. And then by the time you get to the musical, there's this figure of Sophia who's on stage and she doesn't endure the same kind of violence in terms of uh, the way we see Oprah at the end of the movie. The Sophia on the stage is still quite in control of herself. And so she kind of emerges as the heroine of that. So I wanted to maintain the importance of these women who are central to the book, but also tell a different story of the ways in which the color purple shapes who we are, when we encounter it, and when it becomes part of American culture again through these, these women. They all have different power in different moments. Absolutely. So let, let's start with Celie. And Celie is such an interesting character in American literature for, for so many reasons that you get into in the book. Could you talk a little bit about why Celie is so significant to The Color Purple, but also how she emerges in Alice Walker's sort of imagination? Yeah, one of the things I didn't realize before embarking on this process was how intimate these characters were to Alice Walker. Like, they're not just literary characters who come to her, um, even though that's part of what they are but they are also her family members. And so Celie is based on Alice Walker's grandmother, who, her step-grandmother, but, you know, Black people, the grandmother. <laughs> right. And who was married to Alice's uh, grandfather as a teenager, uh, right after Alice's biological grandmother was murdered by her lover in front of Alice's father, Willie Lee. So Rachel is her name. You have Rachel as someone that Alice knows her whole life but that she wants to give voice to, and she wants to imagine a life that Rachel never had. She wants to imagine a trajectory of freedom and healing that was denied to Rachel. So you have Celie based on someone who's familiar to Alice, but also then this is where Alice's, I think, literary genius comes in, that she's trying to tell the story of Celie in the language that her grandmother spoke. And she wanted to tell a story that her mother, Alice's mother, would be able to read. And so to do all of that, to kind of capture Southern Black vernacular English in a novel is pretty hard feat. We would see, you know, for, you and I are African-Americanists, so we know that it's not uncommon for someone like Langston Hughes to write poems in the voice of Jesse Simple, which is a, a particular urban vernacular. Or Zora Neale Hurston obviously experimented with this voice and their eyes were watching God. Or Paul Lawrence Dunbar um, in his poems. But to have an entire novel in this language that Alice understood to be so rich and so vibrant was radical for the American novel or for the, for the novel at all. So that's one thing, that you have a novel completely in the voice of, or mostly in the voice of a Southern African-American girl who becomes a woman. And then you start off with this really harrowing incest scene or a rape scene. So that also was like, kind of like changes the course of how we can understand Black literature, because she centers that violence early on without giving us any contending points of view. Um, and also that we have to kind of be in Celie's body and be in Celie's mind as she's experiencing that. And so you're, in many ways, Alice's mother couldn't even read The Color Purple because she was so taken aback by that opening scene. And it took her a while to get to the book. And then eventually, of course, she saw the movie. So I think the combination of the, the language, and I write in the book that she sends it to Essence. And Essence had published her before. She sends it to Essence, expecting, of course, that they'd be so excited yeah. to publish new work of hers, and they sent this back, and they're like, no, Black people don't talk like that. So they refused to... to and that was like the whole note, right? That was like the yeah. whole... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, full stop. Like, we ain't gonna publish this. So, so then that creates all these other things. Ms. takes it on, Gloria Steinem becomes 
a huge proponent of it. And then that gets read in particular ways as well. So Siri is just really a character that we've never seen before. And it, and it would be hard to imagine a character kind of breaking out so uniquely again. But uh, yeah, that's what that's what Seely. Seely is uh, speaking in her own voice, finding her truth, and then falling in love with Shug, and then creating a community through that love. The idea of a book, particularly at that time, documenting these various forms of harm done to Seely, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, and then the idea of her falling in love and having this intimate relationship with Shug. I mean, these, particularly for those listening to this, I mean, we have so many texts now, we have so many forms of content where people can see this kind of stuff and hear these kinds of narratives. But for, can you talk a little bit about, for the time, how significant, how pathbreaking, and also how kind of dangerous this kind of text was for Alice Walker to produce? Yeah, do you remember when you saw the movie for the first time? Because I think, I, I think I saw the movie and then read the book, but do you remember when you saw it for the first time? I, I did the same thing. I saw the movie and then read the book. Yeah, so do you remember seeing Shug and Seeley? Like, we were so young, but like, what is happening here? Right, no, like, very much so. Yeah, so I think, I mean, so I just brought that up because like, if my kids see two women kissing on the screen, that seems much more normal in a way. I mean, they don't really see, they're young, five and eight, so they don't see people kiss, they're like, do, but you know, but I think they have a vocabulary and they have an understanding that that's normative. But for us, when we're seeing that, it's like, we don't even know what exactly is happening. So when she writes the book in 1982, and then the movie comes out in 1985, but she writes the book in 1982, it's the second book by a Black woman that has a lesbian character, which is Celie's a lesbian character, and we, and we can think of Shug as a queer character or a bisexual character. Um, so already that's like innovative, right? Just introducing these two characters within the literary canon is brand new. And then by the time it gets to, so the other book is Loving Her by Anne uh, Elaine Shockley. And when that book comes out, it's completely critiqued, but that's an interracial relationship. So it's not Black women loving Black women the way the color purple is. So that book's critiqued. Alice writes a, a review of that book, but she's still working her way to the color purple. And then when the movie comes out, it, that's the thing that, that's causing all the, the controversy because she's seen as someone who's betraying the Black community by showing Black women in love with Black women. And there's an amazing video with Farrakhan where he literally does a breakdown of the movie. So it's one of his speeches and it's mostly Black women in the audience and he's like a chalkboard and he's <laughs> writing, he writes like the color purple. And what's interesting about his critique, which I was like, wow, like we think it's gonna go, I mean, part of his rhetorical strategy and part of the, the genius of his rhetorical strategy is that he's able to both own parts of the story, concede something, and then reject it. So what he starts off with in his critique is he acknowledges incest. He acknowledges rape happening in the Black community. And, he's, and he says, I could understand why you'd be drawn to this text, because this is the truth, right? So he doesn't dismiss that, which you would think maybe he does. But then it is the lesbianism or the, the queer desire between two Black women the homosexuality, as he calls it. Yeah, that is the sin. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for Black people, I mean, Black people, all, we're queer, we're queer people, but to have this so foregrounded in the novel, but really on film, was just, you know, a bridge too far, I think, for lots of people. And they were boycotting it. So you see Alice Walker has to, to walk just across the picket line to go see her movie, which is pretty stunning for SNCC activists to have to do. Wow. And, and, and even before you get to the movie, the book itself is being critiqued mm. in much the same way. I mean, you have, you have people like Ishmael Reed. I mean, you have a, there's a whole oh, yeah. tradition of people who are yeah. saying this book is problematic for the, for the very same reasons, right? It's promoting homosexuality. It's demonizing Black men. And, and this is a thread that cuts throughout. And like you said, it's sort of interesting for Alice Walker to be positioned as an enemy to the Black community, given her own work, her own commitment to Black folk, and her own work. I mean, this book, your book, I mean, I want to make sure we're making the distinction because The Color Purple is amazing, but Salamisha's book is also <laughs> amazing in search of The Color Purple, which gets at a lot of this stuff. I mean, you also offer, you give us a history of, of Alice Walker from that young girl from Eatonton, Georgia, Putnam County, who makes it to Spelman College first. That doesn't exactly work out, you know, and so forth and so on in terms of her activism, in terms of her own choices, in terms of her own struggles, right? And so for her to arrive at a place to make The Color Purple, and, and be seen as an enemy to Black folk as opposed to someone who loves us just relentlessly. I mean, it, it's, it's such an interesting sort of contrast or tension. Yeah, and I think, 
you know, part of it's like, it's her journey. And then it's my journey where, you know, we're going to school in the nineties. I'm like a tad bit, a little bit older than you. So at my senior year in high school, two things happened. So, I, you know, I, I start the book and I tell you that I, I, there are three books that I was given right before I started my senior year in high school. Alex Haley's uh, Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X, Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye, and Alice Walker's The Color Purple. And I, like, I always make the joke, like, if you know me, like, that's pretty much Salamisha, like, those three books are, like, <laughs> that's just, like, I'm, like, navigating Black nationalism, Black feminism, like, uh, literariness, that's just, that's, that's it. I'm, I'm not much more complicated than those three books. <laughs> but then also my senior year, two catastrophic things happened in the nation. That fall, uh, Anita Hill uh, came forward and testified against Clarence Thomas. And then that spring of my senior year was the LA Rebellion. And so I think having the color purple, having that matrix of books, those three, those three books, but the color purple in particular, I think gave me a vocabulary and gave me insight to understand what was happening when Anita Hill was being considered a race traitor when she comes forward with allegations against Clarence Thomas. Mm. And then when I go to college and I'm sexually assaulted myself by um, an African-American man, my first year of college, and then when I go study abroad program to Kenya, but Kenyan man. I think I was navigating and wrestling with, you know, what does it mean when the harm is from your community and, and not exclusively black women have been raped by, you know, our history is of, of rape by white men and sometimes by African-American men. So I'm dealing with all of that stuff myself and also becoming an activist and, and, and a thinker. And so I think this book is my way of trying to remember who I was at once upon a time and the things that gave me permission to be and the things that gave Alice permission to create the color of purple, which one of the things is Zora Neale Hurston. Absolutely. And, and you talk about Zora in the book as well. And you, you sort of talk about the tradition, even Henry Louis Gates, the great literary scholar, and of course, one of your mentors, who sort of talks about the relationship between The Color Purple and Their Eyes Are Watching God, the classic by Zora Neale Hurston. Can you just talk a little bit about, and you do this in the book, Masterfully, can you talk a little bit about what that relationship is between The Color Purple and, and Their Eyes Are Watching God? Yeah. Yeah. Alice Walker is one of the main reasons why we even know who Zora Neale Hurston is, at least you and I do, because she's part of a generation that didn't grow up reading African-American literature in high school or college. And so she discovers Zora and she has this famous essay that she writes called Looking for Zora. And in that essay, she travels to Zora's birthplace in Florida. And then she travels to where she suspects and where she knows that Zora is buried and there's no tombstone. And so Alice then buys a tombstone for Zora No Hurston and then edits a new volume of her work. And so really inspires in the late 70s uh, a way of reclaiming, recovering, and understanding Zora Neale Hurston's importance to African-American literature and to American literature. Now, for those who are less familiar with Zora Neale Hurston than you and I, you know, she was a genius in her, her own right and a major figure of the Harlem Renaissance. She was an anthropologist, a folklorist, a, a musician, and, and a writer. And in the book, Their Eyes Are Watching God, the story is of Janie Crawford, who is partnered with three different men who represent different parts of her evolution. And she ends up having to return to her town alone and, and widowed. But that book is really about coming into her sexuality and coming into her voice and coming to her own being. And it's also a book that's, as you point out with Harry Lewis Gates, very experimental. So... Uh, the book starts off in a traditional novel voice of a third-person omniscient narrator. That's what most novels that we read are. And then in the middle of the book, it starts breaking. Like, you think uh, the narrator is Jamie. And uh, Henry Louis Gates called it, well, he theorized it as free indirect discourse, which basically means the narrator's voice is taking over the consciousness of the text. Very literary to say it that way. But, but what really it means is that you have the Southern Black woman's voice emerging as the way that we're going to understand the story. And that's pretty radical. Now, Zora Nohurston also was penalized greatly for her book. Uh, someone like Richard Wright thought it was minstrelsy. Uh, Elaine Locke liked it, but wished it had a little bit more like social protest. And so Alice reads it to her family and they love it because it sounds like the way they speak, you know. And yeah. so that made her fall in love with Zora, but also it gave her a, a way of being. 
to write. But then when I interviewed her, I had this whole thing, you know, like I'm, I'm a student of Skip Gates. I know this uh, theory of his inside out. This is how we learn the relationship between Zora and Alice. And then I asked Alice, I'm like, so I'm like, ready to like go, like, you're like Zora. And then she's like, not really. Like, she's like, I, I did what I could her story alive, but I don't think we were that similar, actually. And and I write in the book, that's when I noticed that I'm wrong, that in some way she's the opposite. She's not, Zora dies penniless with no tombstone. She yeah. dies working as a domestic. And Alice Walker has a different uh, relationship to her archive, but also different relationship to land and I guess to her own history. Let's talk a little bit about, about the film. You know, again, for many people, especially Black folk that I know, the introduction to The Color Purple is the film. Yeah. And, and it's sort of interesting to think about the film looming so large now when I read your book and I hear you talk about the ways that Alice Walker had considerable trepidation and anxiety about the film, worried, mm-hmm. and, 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 as, and as the film's being made, she's worried that her book's not being represented properly. Yeah. Talk about that process from going from a book to a film. So she has a, a council of people that she, she, so she's like not, a, she wasn't a film person in early 1985, nor had she seen any of Steven Spielberg's movies. Now, the Steven Spielberg that we think of today is, you know, he can do art house films, he can do blockbusters. We're thinking about kind of posters list Steven Spielberg. But at the time, his famous films were E.T. and... Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, so, so, you know, you may not think like, yo, Steven Spielberg is going to be with the color purple. That, <laughs> that's weird. That's kind of odd. But uh, Quincy Jones, who became the producer of the, the project, and was really, really, really committed to the color purple and, and really wanted the color purple to have both the kind of integrity of the book but also wanted it to reach masses, really, really wanted Steven Spielberg to do this film. So you have him having to convince Alice, and they go through this huge courting ritual to get Alice to sign on to the adaptation. And then they offer her the opportunity to write the first script. And uh, she writes the script, and she has two titles, The Color Purple or Watch Me in the Sunset, because for some reason she didn't really want to commit. (laughs) She wasn't sure if the color purple was going to stay the same once it went to the screen. And in lots of ways, and and some of those decisions that are made are the ones that she gets penalized for. But yeah, but she uh, goes, she's involved in the process. She is on set with them. One of the things I don't include in the book, but only because of COVID, uh, the set photographer was Gordon Parks, which there's these gorgeous images. And, And Gordon Parks is like, I don't do this anymore. I do this as a favorite to friends. So you have him doing it for Quincy Jones, obviously, but she's in North Carolina. She's on the set. She, as I write about in the book, she's suffering from Lyme disease. Her relationship is apart. Her mother is dying. And yet she's committed to this film and it's both healing and then ultimately becomes one of the most painful experiences of her life when it comes out and is received with such backlash. So I think the figure of Mr. is the the one, uh, Albert, uh, is the character that I think gets sort of changed in the, the movie. And then also Suge. So the combination I was of... Suge, yeah. Yeah, Suge and her fullness is reduced. And then Albert's arc of redemption is reduced. And so that combination of denying Albert the ability to be part of the community at the end, and then also not giving us... So, uh, so, so let's talk about that a little bit for, for the audience, because I think these sure. are these are all big things. Oh, yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. sorry. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm no, no, but, but all good stuff. So first yeah. of all, you call the, this section, that, which really deals with the film, Sophia, and, and, which is an interesting choice and an appropriate one, I think. Sure. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's an interesting choice because precisely because of what you just said, right? There's a way that Sugar Avery is able to do things on screen that, that should have happened in the text or that did happen in the text, but were taken out. Specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, Sugar Avery is the love of Celie's life. Celie falls in love with Suge and Suge clearly loves Celie too. And there's so much depth to their relationship. There's so much beauty to their relationship. But in some ways in the film, we don't get to see all of that. In the film, all you see is a single kiss, right? But there's this amazing song where you get to see the depth of her love for Celie, but it's not communicated in the way that it is in the book. Can you talk a little bit about some of the reasons why the film was unable to capture the kind of depth and the complexity of their romantic and sexual attachment? 
Because that, that to me was part of the whole freedom story of Celie was learning her body, learning mm-hmm. her own clitoris, you know, the button and, mm-hmm. and understanding all these things that the film doesn't, as she calls it, that the film doesn't allow us yeah. to access. Celie is, she, you know, she starts off the story as a 14-year-old who's raped by her stepfather. She has two children. The children are taken from her. She's told that they died. And then they actually are adopted by a family in town that go to uh, West Africa as missionaries. And then, then Celie gets married to this much older man named Mr. Slash Albert. And he has a lover. He has a woman that he's been in love with his whole life, Shug Avery. And Shug is someone who is, she's so non-conventional, right? She grows up in the church, but then she's a blues woman. Uh, she has several children with Albert, but she doesn't raise them. And so Shug arrives in Celie's life like a dream. Right. She literally, even though Suge is probably at the, the most uh, desperate time in her own life, she's completely broken. Celie helps Suge come back to life. And then in turn, Suge and Celie fall in love with each other. And Suge gives Celie permission in a way to connect her own body and her own sexuality. And then ultimately finds Nettie's letters. Right. So Suge gives her the world, I think. In the book, she's a very full character. She's traveling. She's coming back and forth. Albert loves her. Celie loves her. And then in the screenplay that Alice Walker writes, she gives Suge an enormous life that's not even in her novel. By the time we get to the film version that Spielberg ends up directing and Quincy ends up producing, Suge is still a kind of, you know, she's a, she's a flapper. She comes in with this red dress and she's singing, but she isn't, uh, their relationship, as you point out, isn't, it's, it's a kiss. And it's all kind of through insinuation. Now, what's interesting is the choice they make. One, and I, I talk about this in the book a bit, there's no, black exploitation films had some representation of women in sexual relationships with women. But for the most part, that is completely foreign to American film. Uh, and to have a loving relationship, be uh, sexual and emotionally intertwined, that's never been seen on American screen before. So it's pretty radical to even to show it. At the same time, it was really conservative given the depths of their relationship in the book. And in, you know, to a degree, Alice comes up with this story because she shook as someone who actually was in her grandmother's life and her grandfather was in love with a woman named Shug Perry. So it's not, it's, you know, like in their world, Rachel and Shug didn't necessarily have a relationship. But there was a triangle that Alice's grandfather was involved in, two women loving the same man. So it's all complicated. But I think that the sadness, I think, is that Suge was seen as such a problematic figure that people wanted to ban the book and they wanted to boycott it. And uh, there's an organization that comes about just in response to Purple called <laughs> Coalition Against Black Exploitation. Writing to Quincy Jones the entire time they're filming and he's getting he's getting it he's trying to protect alice protect steven but he's getting he can feel the the backlash coming i, I, I don't I think it was, were, no please i was gonna say the movie nominated for 11 oscars unheard of for a black cast film but then they don't get it so that's kind of the way it ended up harming them as well yeah i was gonna say and it seemed it seemed like the the kind of oscar uh snubs were directly connected to all the protests around the film uh the idea that major figures, uh, major political figures, major literary figures, the fact that people would start a whole organization in response to one book or one film is it, somewhat stunning, but it sort of speaks to the politics of the moment. W- was The Color Purple ahead of its time in that way, or? Yeah, well, I think Suge was ahead of her time anyway, and then the book itself was ahead of its time, and also shaped our time. But definitely, I mean, I think you're, you know, the way that men are represented in American film, it wasn't as if there were a plethora of images that were circulating, right? And this is also 1980s, it's Reagan, there's a, a, a war against Black people, a war against uh, working class Black people. Part, you know, we're obviously in a very racist time today, but it was extremely racist then. And so how Black people told the story of their lives on screen really mattered. Now, this is going to feel ironic, but also we know that the Cosby show ends up being one of the more preferred representations of black people by black people and by white America in the late 80s. So that's kind of what, I say it's ironic because it's ironic, but um, that kind of middle-class respectable household 
is very different than what we're seeing in the color purple, even though the characters in the color purple are middle class, so to speak, but just that level of violence and despair in some ways, I think, really thought made people think that Alice Walker was just reproducing stereotypes about black people as opposed to liberating us from them. Some of the criticism goes to Alice Walker. A lot of it also goes to Steven Spielberg. When the film comes out, people felt like Spielberg had sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. He almost, I don't say Disney-fied, but that, that he took the kind of rawness of the color purple and made it something else. That in making it a cinematic project, that, that he took away something from it. And that it was the work of a filmmaker who didn't quite know what to do with this or someone who had a kind of cynical kind of commercial vision of, of what the color purple would look like. And that something was lost. People didn't like that Suge, I'm sorry, that Harpo was falling through the roof all the time. You know, at least Alice didn't, right? I mean, there's a way that people didn't like the musical numbers. There were people who didn't like, so even the, the, the lighting and the color in some of the scenes. I mean, it's so hard for me to imagine that now because for me, the color purple, again, everybody I know has seen the color purple and most black people I know love the color purple. And so the idea that people either had the kind of ideological differences with it or just didn't think it was a well-made film, it, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. But how hard was that for them to, to, to deal with? I, Steven Spielberg doesn't, he has a baby, he doesn't read the reviews. He's just like, you know, it's just, he doesn't know what's happening. And and you have this reality where uh, there's all this criticism and all this backlash, and yet you have droves of people going to see the movie, and droves of Black people going to see the movie. And I wanted to include the voices of Black people who supported the movie, and also include the voices of people like Shirley Chisholm or Maxine Waters, we're doing like screen where we think of like screenings of the film or screening parties and writing to Alice Walker and thanking her for her work. Uh, I wanted to include Danny Glover um, and Quinton too. In the midst of even my retelling, there's a way in which black men are seen as so antagonistic towards this project. But it was really wonderful to be able to interview Quincy and, and Danny uh, in particular and why they were so invested in this film, how they saw themselves or they saw in the case of Danny Glover who grew up in California, but would spend summers in Georgia, how this was his grandmother's story. Now he's like the most vilified character in the plot, right? But the way in which he attends to that role with dignity and compassion, and also the way in which he sees Celie's arc as his own arc is really important for me to share, not only because it's true that these men were involved in the debates, but also in, in the shaping of the film, but in my own life, I thought it was really important. That, that's been my primary experience with Black men as well, that they are supportive of the liberation of Black women and that they are, are alongside us in this freedom struggle. So it was important for me to reclaim their voices, but also as part of my own coming of age, that's kind of how I've experienced solidarity with Black men as well. So yeah, I mean, it's crazy for us to think of Steven Spielberg as someone that people thought was like, you know, he didn't wait his turn. And so he took on a serious film when he was supposed to just be doing Jaws 4. But that's how he was, <laughs> <laughs> that's how he was seen. They're like, who's this, who's this boy doing this film? And, you know, he later on does Amistad, right? So he, and then he does, you know, we also know he does Shinley Foot. So this, in many ways, prepares him for the kind of director that we think of him now, Lincoln and all of this. But this was his first uh, foray into that. And I, I think it took everything out of them. You know, I, I went into this book having lots of criticisms of The Color Purple, the movie, having criticisms of the musical. And through the process of writing this and researching and talking and understanding, I had a new empathy for what they were trying to do in their time, on their terms, understanding that they weren't always successful, that Harpo is a challenging character that should not have been, because that's based on Alice's father, right? So he is not a buffoon, but he does feel like a buffoon a bit in the movie. And that's why in the musical, they try to address that uh, and make him a fully formed character and make Albert really redeemed by the end of the musical. So those are two characters that I think are so incredibly important and whose careers are so interesting from the book to the film to the, to the uh, stage. And mm -hmm. that is uh, Sophia and Albert, or Mr. Mm -hmm. First of all, again, like when I read the book, there's Seely, there's Suge, and there's Nettie. You know, Celie is obviously the main character. She's writing to God, but ultimately to Nettie at some point. And of course, Suge Avery is her love interest. But for those of us who watch the film, it's not that Nettie's not important, 
but Sophia is so much more important. And that has everything to do, maybe not everything, but it has a lot to do with Oprah and, her, and how Oprah plays that role and mm. what Steven Spielberg decides to do with that role. So Sophia becomes so much bigger and so much more powerful. In fact, maybe the most iconic lines from The, from the Color Purple, almost all of them come from Sophia. Sophia, yeah. Kendrick Lamar is like, you know, all my life, yeah. <laughs> right, Sophia. exactly. It's, it's, true. it's true. But the other thing is is Albert, or Mr. And honestly, I, I enjoyed the whole book, but I, my, my favorite part was the last third of the book, as you're wrestling with some of this stuff, not just the, the, what happens on the stage play, but helping us think through Me Too, helping us think through what redemption looks like in the as we live in a world where we're starting to talk abolition and restorative justice, and what possibilities are there when people do harm in the world. To think about the, the life of Mr. in that book is so interesting. Because again, I saw the movie first. Mm-hmm. So in the movie, he's off in the distance. He finally lets her, you know, she gets the, she gets the letter. She gets to get back with her children. It's clear <laughs> that he played a role in it. Yeah. But he's in the distance. When you read the novel, I was shocked to see how much they had reconciled. I was shocked to see that he proposed. I was shocked mm-hmm. to understand how far they had come. And then in the stage play, that gets taken up in, in, a, in a much more, inter- not interesting, in a, in a much different way. But all of those possibilities bring up, as you talk about in the book, different ways of thinking about redemption, right? He's, he's far more fully redeemed in, in the book and in Broadway than he is in the movie. Why do you think Spielberg makes that choice to not let him be fully back into society, as it were, back into the community? And, and, and what's at stake when we think about Mr. in these different ways, especially at this moment? Well, so I want to say that Alice's first book, The Third Life of Grange Copeland, is her first novel. She writes in 1970, the same year The Bluest Eye comes out, is about her grandfather and in many ways. But it's also a character of Grange Copeland and who's an abusive, abusive man who has an abusive, abusive son. And it's told through the point of view of Grange and then his, his granddaughter, uh, Ruth. And so there you actually have Alice beginning to deal with these questions of forgiveness and atonement and redemption. And it's a theme that you kind of see throughout her entire body of work, but then her next novel is Meridian. And then again, you have these characters who are trying to heal with each other and uh, really cruel, cruel uh, behavior, but that these characters find their way back to each other in the civil rights movement in Meridian. So by the time you get to The Color Purple, she's been really working through these themes most of her literary career up until that point. So it's not new. It's just that with the character of Albert, because she sent her Seeley, it's through Seeley's eyes that we get to experience Albert's redemption, which is different than through mm-hmm. Albert's eyes, right? Like the, the, in the third life of Grange Copeland, you could, you could think of it that way. So yeah, what I think is powerful about this story in this moment is that you get an entire arc, two characters, one character who's traumatized at the beginning, who finds wholeness at the end, and then another character who's also traumatized. Albert's deeply traumatized by growing up as a black man in the segregated South with a father who's dominant, who denies him access to the woman he loves. And so therefore he has to marry someone who doesn't love a teenage girl. I mean, it's a lot. Uh, And uh, his first wife, so he's so in love with Suge, that she ends up taking on a, a lover who then kills her. I mean, it's a lot of trauma and a lot of um, pain that he experiences. And so for him to go through this whole arc of trying to make amends, not just with Seely, not just with Shug, but Nettie, and then also Harpo, it's pretty remarkable. And he has to, to do it the hard way. Like, it's not, like, it's so interesting being in this moment that we're in, where in which Republican congressmen are, are calling for unity and peace without any accountability. They're like, if you want Joe Biden uh, to have a government of unity, don't do this form of accountability. And I'm like, that's not really how accountability works, right? right. Like, Black people know what it's like to have peace and reconciliation without atonement. That's called Jim Crow, right? Like, that's like we, we've been there. We know that that's not an uh, actual way of creating unity or peace. It's a way of maintaining power for one group over the other. So I think what's powerful about the color purple in this moment, whether it's a moment of deep uh, white supremacists uh, charging the Capitol, or it's a moment in which we're still trying to find models of people who have been accused of sexual violence or sexual harassment, how to hold them accountable. How can they come back into the community? Alice gives us that, but it's just very difficult. 
Albert has to go through, he has to want to be part of the community on the new terms that the community finds itself, right? He wants, wants to be part of Suge and Suge's life as they are free Black women. And he does a lot to earn their trust, but it's a remarkable thing because I, as I say in the book, like, you know, I haven't experienced as a sexual assault survivor, I have, you know, I've never had that journey someone trying to atone for their harm to me, though I've healed, I've, I've gone the Seely route, but I've never had the Albert person in my life with my sexual assault. So he's just a remarkable figure, a remarkable character, and really, a, and, and the story's yet not about him. He's still a remarkable character who is not the center of the story, which is also pretty amazing. How did so many people miss that? I mean, at a moment where people were saying this book is demonizing Black men, you have a figure who does extraordinary harm, who is brought to a space of redemption. And it would seem to me that you could have read Alice Walker as healing Black men on the page and, and helping bring them into back into community in a restorative way. Why do you think that that gets lost in the book and on the stage, and maybe even in the film? I mean, I don't know if we're just, you and I are of a generation where these questions about vulnerability, Black male empathy and intimacy, we're just like a different, We've inherited those those conversations, right? Like we can watch a film like Moonlight and see that whole arc of like healing and love. Um, I'm writing about uh, one night in Miami. I just interviewed Regina King for this uh, for the Times, and that's her. That the whole film is about these four icons: Malcolm X, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Cassius Clay. And her whole thing was like, I want to show Black men as vulnerable people. Now, to take those four Black men from the 60s and try to, like, make them, they are multidimensional, right? They, they, they live their lives as very full people. But to try to show that humanity and that vulnerability is an aesthetic of the present for us. So, so for you and me, we're like, why did they miss that? But I think, you know, this is a, this, they're coming out of the Black Power Movement and, and the Civil Rights Movement. And in Reagan's era, and I don't know if that vulnerability was seen as a, a strength, more likely it was seen as a liability. And the other thing I would like to say is like, you and I were hip hop kids. You know, what the yeah. image that was coming up of black masculinity in the 80s and 90s, really it was not like, <laughs> you know, we, we, we grew up with hip hop. Vulnerability wasn't necessarily the dominant aesthetic of, of hip hop either. But I think this comes out in a time when that's not what people, believe, they haven't yet gotten to the point where we can appreciate Black men's vulnerability as essential to represent as part of their humanity. Strength, I think, dominance, those things were important for Black men to be shown because they had been denied access to that for so long in American film. Mm. I want to pivot a little bit to talk about your process and your, your as a writer. There's so many interesting decisions you make in this text, one of which is to talk about your own journey, your own story. As we hear about Alice Walker's family history, we hear about yours. As you mentioned Oprah Winfrey's, your encounter with Oprah Winfrey and her talking about her experiences with as a sexual assault survivor, you, you talk about your own, even telling us what you don't tell Oprah. What is it like to be that vulnerable on the page? Yeah, first of all, I just have to thank you because I, I always joke with you about this, but Mark is responsible for my uh, first foray public writing both, I can't remember that that blog site. Was it blackprof.com? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> so, yes. So you were, you were my, <laughs> I know, we're like, I'm going way back here. You were <laughs> responsible for um, my first public writing on that site. And then you also were responsible for me being on the roof. So you actually mm. helped shape this voice in really intimate and very important ways. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, don't, I guess I haven't told you all that. But no, yeah, you're very responsible for my, my new writing stuff. You know, part of this decision to write this book on Nina Simone, I decided I wanted to write a, a public book or a trade book, as we call it. And I knew I had to discover a different voice. And it's been a very long process. And so to try to combine like criticism and memoir, as someone who's been formally trained as a, a literary critic in the academy, it's tricky. Like, how do you use yourself as a character? Or how do you know when to insert yourself without it being excessive? How do you know when to pull back? It's, it's very difficult. But I think I've had the opportunity to keep on experimenting with that voice. And then also, again, Alice Walker's, she has, In Search of the Color Purple is named after or inspired by a book called In Search of Our Mother's Gardens that Alice wrote right after The Color Purple. It was her first creative nonfiction book. 
she has all these great essays and she's present, like I said, with the Zora story and then she pulls back and she does close reading. So that was a helpful guide to me as well. But I think the writers that I love the most, and it's a cliche to say Baldwin, but we love Baldwin, uh, Audre Lorde, the essayists that I love the most really have this ability to move in and out of a text with themselves. And then they kind of come in and then they do a big thing and they go back out. And, and I wanted to achieve that in this book. The hardest part for me too was just writing a book. I, I, I think I've gotten very good with, at, at the time, New York Times, writing short form pieces. To sustain that in a story that has a plot, that has another chapter, that's related, you know, all of that stuff was difficult because this is my first book this voice and so yeah I don't know I mean it's a hybrid genre it's memoir um criticism it's book history film history it's a lot of stuff at once was there any and of course you are co-founder along with your uh sister Shahrazad of A Long Walk Home and I've seen you know presentations uh that the Mm -hmm. nonprofit has done of course you guys use art and other things to address and ultimately end you know sexual violence You've told your story in public for a long time. You've you've told mm-hmm. your story in various spaces, but there's a certain kind of permanence, and, and and the stakes may seem higher to some. Putting it in a book, yeah. What was that like for you? Yeah, you know, I just did a reading last night virtually at the Schomburg, and my sister Shahrazad and my partner Solomon. I was reading excerpt, and they haven't read the book yet. So they're like, yo, that's in there? They're like, I don't like, I told you guys, it's like, it's a bit, you may want to check it out before people come up to you and start talking to you about it. But, you know, on you <laughs> your own terms, in your time, yeah. go read it. It was different. Yeah, I mean, that's, I sound silly, but it was, it was different because, because I was revisiting that person. And so I had to kind of get to those places of reimagining and remembering how vulnerable I felt. Like, I'm 45 now, but I'm telling a story of a, 18 year old or a 17 year old or 25 year old and that person's really I mean I still have lots of those qualities but that sense of uncertainty the person who identified with Celie that's a different person so I had to revisit a self that had just been harmed as opposed to a self that's been in the process of healing and then also to tell the story of my own healing required an honesty that's always hard to share with people and it's always hard to put on the page. And so the writing I love the most does that. I I find it effective. And also, you know, we're also the age of Ta-Nehisi Coates is really important between the world and me. And I think to see his trajectory from being like a blogger and a journalist to putting it on the page. And and I was like, oh, that's very, it's effective. It's just an effective strategy. And if, if you can have a compelling argument and tell a good story, you can do a lot of good in the world and you can do some harm as we can see with other people. But I hope this book does good because it's so intimate. What's your writing process? Do you write every day? I do. And I wake up very early because I have two kids. And so I have to beat them to to sunlight. So (laughs) I wake up, I do. I have a 4 a.m. alarm and my door changes it every night. She was trying to do 6 a.m. But I do write every day. Partly, and that's not the academic in me, that's the journalist in me, just because I don't know if you experienced this, but I found myself having a great ability to procrastinate uh, and, yes. and need to find inspiration uh, as an academic. And then when you're on deadline and you have to have something turned in and, you know, there's less, ex- less room for excuses, I've learned to write every day. So I think the Nina book really the desire to write the Nina book and then the ability to write this Alice Walker book, or the Color Purple book, changed my relationship to writing. But I'm one of the people who write every day, which is like all writers say that, but I was not someone who said that even six years ago. But I do do write every day. And I watch a lot of television. So I want to let, this is the thing that, that shocks people, that I write to television shows. I have to have something on the background. Are you I know it's, yes, it's blasphemous. It's the worst thing. But I want to free somebody up somewhere by saying that. Yes, I watch. What, what kind of shows are we talking about? I'm really into like thrillers. I watch an enormous amount of television. That's how I'm able to, to get so much cultural criticism. Like I'm able to consume so much information. I used to be able to write to music, and then when I started doing this Nina Simone project so many moons ago, music became like a thing. Like it wasn't just ambient noise; it was like a thing I had to think about. So then I started writing to television shows, and so okay, so television shows I write. To, I don't know. I could write to anything. Like you know, really. The show, uh, there's this movie that looks crazy, like Fatal, that's out right now. And I'm like, 
should I buy it? Because I need to write something. So I need something. Usually things that you can, wow. if you've missed something, you have to rewind just a little bit. But yeah, lots of thrillers, dramas. I'm watching a show called The, the Longest Run right now, which is a Dries Alba show. And I'm right into that. It's so good, by the way, if you ever want to watch it. It's like amazing. I missed the show. So I just write to, I have to have the television on when I'm writing. Wow, that's you. Of all the people on the show, you're the first person. I've heard music. I've heard people need to write outside. People who sit under under tables. I've I've heard everything except to TV show. That that is that is a new one. But it's it's clearly working for you. Look, <laughs> but before you go, I, I we have one more thing. Sure. The game that we play it brings me great joy. And okay, joy. It's good. And it tortures my guests. So it's, oh okay. Oh, it brings you joy, but it tortures them. Okay. Okay. Yes. Let me get ready. Let me get ready. It's a two. -point. <laughs> It's called, it's called Buy It, Borrow It, or Burn It. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to give you three books, and one you can buy, one you can borrow, and one you have to burn. Oh, my goodness. So, so here's the thing. It's a new year, and I'm feeling uh -huh. very good. So normally, I would put the color purple on this list to make you make some really tough choices. But I'm not, oh, going, to include, oh, I am not okay. going to include the color purple. Okay. okay, well, thank you, Mark, for not including the color purple. But I'm, here, so here, I'm so scared. I'm so scared. The three books are... Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Why are you doing this? And The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Oh my God. <laughs> this is cruel. Yes. So I would buy The Bluest Eye because Toni Morrison, uh, the reason I became a critic. And so I'd have to have her in my library and borrow Malcolm X's. Um, I feel like his autobiography is a shared text that people should circulate and pass on to each other. So I would borrow um, his book. And then, as I said, with Zora's, I, I feel like I maybe in part get some of what she was trying to do in the later books that are inspired by her. And you said those books are, uh, of course, we talked earlier about uh, that book being- being, well, um, being the color purple. Another one would be, I guess, Toni Morrison Sula, and then another one would be Janet Mock's Redefining Realness, which is based on the structure of their eyes are watching. That, those are great choices. And again, there is no right or wrong answer. Of course, we love all books. We don't want to burn any books, y'all. But it's a fun game, at least for me, that allows people to think through what, what books they love the most and, and, and why they love them so much. So that's a cool thing. And of course, you can get Salamisha Tillett's new book. It's a wonderful book. If you love The Color Purple and you think you know everything about the book, the film, or the play, trust me, you don't. You want to read this. If you want to learn more about Alice Walker, make sure you read this. And if you just want to see one of the great cultural critics of our time in, in, in action, Salamisha Tillett, make sure you check this book out. You can grab that as well. Salamisha, how can people get a hold of you? My website, www.salamishah.com or through uh, the nonprofit that Mark mentioned, A Long Walk Home, uh, www.alongwalkhomehome.org. Thank you. And, and again, thank you for hanging out with us. And we can't wait to see that, that next book, that Nina book. We're going to be waiting. Oh, gosh. We have to do something fun. Thank you so much, Mark. This is beautiful. Thank you. and. Uh, Safe days ahead. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. That's Coffee A N D Books Show. Also, you can buy all the books that I've been discussing here at bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's, or you can go straight to unclebobbies.com. That's Uncle B O B B I E S.com.